We're in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor of those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the, tab- in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. As we said in last week's, Jesus was getting the attention of the religious leaders and it was not the kind of attention that was going to give him great accolades. He was ultimately going to be crucified because of that attention. And no more um, disgust was created in the eyes of the religious leaders than over the issue of the Sabbath. It was the Sabbath really and how Jesus treated the Sabbath that ultimately was going to do him in. Turn with me to another portion, if you have your Bibles quickly, to John 5.15, and it says it right there. There's another account in the Gospels of the Sabbath, and we won't read all of that, but it's the healing at the pool. At the very end of that, it says this, The man went away, in verse 15, and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus was in trouble with religious leaders, but it's interesting, he didn't warn his disciples about it. There's no indication that he told them to be careful, they're watching us. He just had them follow him. And in this case, as they were following, they were plucking grain in the grain fields and taking their hands and threshing it, according to the religious leaders, and eating it. There's no indication. In fact, Scripture gave permission for them to go through the fields when they traveled and eat the grain that was there if they were hungry. That wasn't a violation in the eyes of the Pharisees. The violation rested squarely in the fact that Jesus let them do it on the Sabbath. Now, it's interesting here as you look at this. I hope you're asking these kinds of questions. How in the world did they know? How in the world did the Pharisees know this was happening? We don't know. The Scripture really doesn't tell us. But their eyes were on Jesus, particularly as he handled and dealt with the Sabbath. We didn't read it all, but if you go on in that passage a little farther, you find another account of healing a man with a withered hand, which Jesus seems to just intentionally have done on the Sabbath. He could have waited, but he did it on the Sabbath. So we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to look at Jesus' statements that he made regarding the Sabbath. How did Jesus view the Sabbath? Why did he deal with the Pharisees and religious leaders the way he did regarding the Sabbath? And we get lots of indication of that from this passage in Matthew chapter 12. There's several things that he did. First of all, he used some of 
the bolstering of his letting his disciples do what they did in the grain fields on the account of David. And the story is told there. We read about it this morning when David went into the temple and he took the consecrated bread, which was unlawful, to feed his hungry men. He used that as a bolstering of his argument of why his disciples could go through the grain fields and eat the grain. He also said things in other Gospels in that context of that story of David where he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And again here in these verses, a couple of different ways he says things. In verse 6 he says something greater than the temple is here. That was part of his argument. Something greater than the temple is here. And his certain indication was that he was the one who was greater than the temple. And then he said in verse 7 that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And if you had only known that, you would know these men were guiltless in what they did. They didn't violate the Sabbath. And then in verse 8 it says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then finally he said in verse 12, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The last couple of weeks we've said that I hope you're asking questions of the Scripture. In fact, you are. People are asking and, and starting to really look at Scripture and ask questions of Scripture. If you really want to know Scripture, you have to approach Scripture that way. Not, not skeptical kinds of questions, not questions that are accusing God, but genuine questions. Not, not, not questions that want to trap God or trap Jesus, but just genuine questions that flow out. And I'm hoping there'll be a bunch of them this morning. Because I have some. After I spent this week, I have some questions. I hope you'll ask some of those questions. And together we'll find answers to some of those questions. It is good to ask questions. Don't ever let anybody tell you it's not. Just be careful the tone in which you ask them. I think God honors good questions. And he wants us to ask good questions. You won't know the scriptures as you should if you don't do that. But what I want to do now this morning is take some time to look at the why of Jesus' statements. Why did he make those statements that he made regarding the Sabbath? What did he mean by them? What was the context of his of his asking them? And we may get all through this today and we may not. We may have to wait to finish Till next week, we'll see how it goes. But the first reason why I think Jesus made these statements that I just talked about, why he used David to bolster his argument and what David's men did and then all of the statements that we just read. One of the reasons is that the meaning of the Sabbath had been greatly distorted by the religious leaders in this day. It's interesting, it says, at this time, in verse 12, as you begin, verse 12, at this time, at the time of all of this distortion going on, Jesus does these things on the Sabbath. Providential, I think. Jesus knew it was going to create problems, but he also knew there were some things that needed correcting and he wanted the proper view of the Sabbath to go forward. And there were lots of improper views. Let me give you some history here. And, and for a time, I'm just going to read some of this. It comes out of John MacArthur's commentary, second volume of his commentary in the book of Matthew. Just, it'll just give you a context here. One of the reasons why I think Jesus did what he did on the Sabbath. He wanted people to get it right. 
In fact, it's incredibly important. If we get all the way to the end today, you'll see why it's incredibly important to get the Sabbath right, to understand what the Sabbath is all about here in the context of Scripture. But let me read some things to you to give you the background. This is the setting in which Jesus dropped all of these statements into. Certainly, I think we understand that Sabbath means ceasing or rest or inactivity. That's what the meaning of Sabbath is. And it comes out of what happened at the end of creation. And MacArthur writes, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because it is in it he rested from all of his work which God had created and made out of Genesis chapter 2. And then in honor of that day, the Lord declared it to be a special time of rest and remembrance for his people and incorporated his observance into the requirements of the Ten Commandments. It is one of the Ten Commandments. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Now listen to what else he writes in his commentary. But the law, that law, but that law is the only one of the Ten Commandments that is non-moral and purely ceremonial. And it was unique to the Old Covenant and to Israel. The other nine commandments, on the other hand, pertain to moral and spiritual absolutes and are repeated and expanded upon many places in the New Testament. But Sabbath observance is never recommended to Christians, much less given as a command in the New Testament. When Jesus began his ministry, the old covenant was still in effect and all its requirements were binding on Jews, the special people of that covenant. Jesus observed every demand and met every condition of Scripture because it was his own word which he came to fulfill and not to destroy, the Scripture says in Matthew. But for several hundred years, the various schools of rabbis had added regulation after regulation going far beyond the teaching of Scripture and in many instances actually contradicting it. In no area were these additions more extensive and extreme than in regard to Sabbath observance. Keeping the Sabbath was still a binding ceremonial obligation, as we said, for Israel. And in fact, it was in many cases, Jewish tradition had even caused the Sabbath to be dangerous. Some of these things that they had added to it. In the antiquities, the Jewish historian Josephus reports that it was also because of Jews. Uh, let me say that again, that it was also because Jews would not defend themselves on the Sabbath that the Roman general Pompey was able to capture Jerusalem. Now let me tell you what he says here. Actually what happened is Pompey realized that the Jewish people would not, would not fight on the Sabbath, would not defend themselves on the Sabbath if he did one thing. And that one thing is if he just built a mound. And so... Pompey wouldn't fight on the Sabbath. He just built his mound, which ultimately led to the destruction of Jerusalem because he built it high enough. But it's interesting that the Jewish law would have given him, given the Jews permission to fight him on the Sabbath, to actually defend him if he were fighting. But they had concluded that building the mound was not fighting. And so they laid low on the Sabbath and he kept building his mound. And ultimately, because they laid low, it led to the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the ways in which the Sabbath observance, in its distorted sense, had actually led to dangerous things. In, in other cases, it did the same to the Jewish people. 
One section alone of the Talmud, the major compilation of Jewish tradition, has 24 chapters listing Sabbath laws. One law specified that the basic limit for travel was 3,000 feet from one's house. But various exceptions were, pro- were provided. If you had placed some food within 3,000 feet of your house, you could go there to eat it. And because the food was considered an extension of your house, you could then go another 3,000 feet beyond the food. If a rope were placed across the adjoining street or alley, the building on the other side, as well as the alley between, could be considered part of your home. Certain objects could be lifted up and put down only from and to certain places. Other things could be lifted up from a public place and set down in a private one and vice versa. Still others could be picked up in a wide place and put down in a legally free place, but rabbis could not agree about the meaning of wide and free. Under Sabbath regulations, a Jew could not carry a load heavier than a dried fig, but if an object weighed half of that amount, he could carry it twice. Eating restrictions were among the most detailed and extensive. You could eat nothing larger than an olive, and if you tasted half an olive, found it to be rotten, and spit it out, that half was considered to have been eaten as far as the allowance was concerned. Throwing an object into the air with one hand and catching it with the other was prohibited. If the Sabbath overtook you as you reached for some food, the food was to be dropped before drawing your arm back, lest you be guilty of carrying a burden. Tailors did not carry needles with them on the Sabbath for fear that they might be tempted to mend the garment and thereby perform work. Nothing could be bought or sold, and clothing could not be dyed or washed. A letter could not be dispatched, even if, the, if by the hand of a Gentile no fire could be lit or extinguished, including fire for a lamp, although a fire already lit could be used within certain limits. For that reason, some Orthodox Jews today use automatic timers to turn lights on in their home well before the Sabbath begins. Otherwise, they might forget to turn them on in time and have to spend the night in the dark. Baths could not be taken for fear some of the water might spill onto the floor and wash it. Chairs could not be moved because dragging them might make a furrow in the ground and a woman was not to look in a mirror lest she see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. That's an interesting one, isn't it? You could carry ink enough to draw only two letters of the alphabet and false teeth. I didn't even know they had them. False teeth could not be worn because they exceeded the weight limit for burdens. According to those hair-splitting regulations, a Jew could not pull off even a handful or a grain to eat on the Sabbath unless he was starving, which, of course, is often a difficult thing to determine and would be cause for considerable differences of opinion. If a person became ill on the Sabbath, only enough treatment could be given to keep him alive. Treatment to make him improve was declared to be work and therefore forbidden. To determine just how much food, medicine, and bandaging would be necessary to keep a person alive and no more was itself an impossible burden. Among the many other forbidden Sabbath activities were sowing, plowing, reaping, grinding, baking, threshing, binding sheaves, winnowing, sifting, dyeing, shearing, spinning, kneading, separating or weaving two threads, tying or untying a knot, and sewing two stitches. And then he sums it up like this. He says, The Sabbath was anything but a time of rest. 
It had become a time of oppressive frustration and anxiety. The people were sick to death of this system that had been imposed on them by ungodly, worldly legalists. And they were indeed weary and heavy laden. That scripture has new meaning, doesn't it? Don Carson, in his commentary concerning the Sabbath, um, talks about the things that were forbidden. Um, and in essence, what he says, in essence, what the Sabbath was before all of these distortions happened was that there was forbidden to do work on the Sabbath, which meant one's customary employment. But you see how they'd gone to great lengths to extrapolate that. And had made it much bigger than that. The Mishnah had 39 classes of work that they had come up with. And you can just see how difficult and what a burden it must have been for those people of that day to live so afraid that they would do something that they didn't even know they'd done. It would cause them to be guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Carson goes on and he says this, The simple Old Testament command to keep the Sabbath day holy had been hedged about by a mass of subsidiary legislation to determine just what was and was not permissible on the Sabbath. It's interesting, there's no suggestion in this passage and anywhere in Scripture that Jesus opposed the Sabbath principle. He just opposed the distortions of that Sabbath principle. And the issue here in this text, really, the issue that we're going to deal with and the the reason it's important to look here is a couple of things. The issue is really how the Sabbath was to be interpreted and who had authority to interpret it. That's really the heart of what Jesus is doing, how it should be interpreted and who really has the authority to decide that. And these religious leaders knew that Jesus' response to them was, a, was an affront to their authority. In essence, what Jesus was doing is saying, you are not the ones who have the authority to develop all of these things. I'm the one. I'm the one who has the authority to decide how this Sabbath principle should be interpreted. We see that in the context of the argument of Jesus here. He goes back to David. You see what he does? He takes the case of David and he talks about how David here violated the law, technically, in going into the temple and taking the consecrated bread. He violated the ceremonial law to feed his hungry troops. And the fact is, they revered David. The religious leaders revered David. And so if they were to somehow criticize Jesus, they in essence knew that his argument was then you were also criticizing David and they didn't want to go anywhere close to that. That was the argument. And what basically Jesus is saying is that my authority is equal, at least equal to David's. And he goes farther than that. That's where he makes the statement about the temple. Look at it there in the scripture in verse 6. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Not only did he say my authority is as much as David's authority. If David are going to interpret the ceremonial law and what can and can't be done, then I have equal authority to do that. And in fact, my authority is even greater than that because I am greater than the temple. It's one thing for them to attack or for Jesus to attack David. 
But it was another thing for him to throw the temple in. They revered the temple. And for Jesus to say someone is greater here or something is greater here than the temple. And they knew exactly what Jesus meant. Jesus was saying, That's, that something is me. So his argument is, I have at least the authority of David. In fact, I have more authority than that, David. I have more authority than the temple. And then finally he says, he just comes right out and says it, that I am Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who has the authority to interpret what Sabbath means. And the reason Jesus had authority to do that is because he had created it. And therefore he could interpret it. He was God. All of that was thrown into this encounter with the religious leaders. You can begin to see why, as they were opposed, how that opposition just continued to grow. They were infuriated by his response. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying, what he was inferring. And they didn't like it a bit. In fact, Jesus goes on a little farther than that. And really what he says, my interpretation is this. My interpretation of the ceremonial law is this, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. comes right out of Hosea 6. 6. They should have seen it. They should have realized that they didn't. But Jesus is saying, mercy, not sacrifice. Sacrifice had to do everything with the ceremonial law. And Jesus said, mercy and love trumps ceremony. That's what he was saying here. And again, they didn't like it. They were upset. They were infuriated. What it really shows us here, what this part of what we're talking about shows us is really the deceitfulness of our hearts, of all of our hearts, really. The Pharisees are just those that get raised up here, but all of us have this tendency within us. The Pharisees wanted to rest in wrong places. You see, that's what false religion does. That's what distorted Christianity does, or Judaism in this case, and later Christianity. Distorted Judaism, distorted Christianity makes a mockery of it. It it wants to rest in the wrong places. And what had happened is these religious leaders were resting in their own moralism, in their own legalism, in their own ability to somehow merit God's favor. And they had extrapolated out this Sabbath principle to the point where they could just glory in their ability to be moral. Or at least what they thought was moral. Really at the heart of it was a wretchedness. At the heart of it was a sick, sick kind of faith. And Jesus was exposing that. And one of the evidence of the sickness, one of the evidences wherever you find Christianity, one of the evidences of of people who name the name of Christ is at the heart, if you distort where they're resting, if you distort what they're putting their hope in, it leads to unmerciful hearts. At the core of it, it, in fact, it may take you a while to get the layers off, but at the heart of that, there is an unmerciful spirit because when when you rest in the wrong places, when you take Christianity to be a moralistic kind of legalistic endeavor, and it has more to do about your ability to establish your own righteousness versus the righteousness that God provides in Christ, at the core, at the heart of that, will be an unmerciful heart. 
Christianity, true Christianity, is, is a merciful experience, a loving experience. People genuinely love when they begin to embrace the truth of Christianity. And any kind of distortion happens when they somehow are resting in the wrong places. And that's exactly what these Judaizers, uh, what the uh, what the the, the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of them were doing. They were resting in the wrong place. They had built up this system of faith that they gloried in and they should have not gloried in it. It was sickness. It was sickness all around. And I think all of us have that danger. One man has said that the default of the human heart is moralism. The default of the human heart is moralism. I, I, as I was preparing this message, went back to some of my early days as I came acquainted with Christianity, came acquainted with Christ. I didn't grow up in the church, as many of you know that, and, and had, had, had a longing in my heart to try to find God. And it, it certainly wasn't a perfect longing, but there was something stirring in my heart. And at the age of 18... Um, I had somebody present the claims of Christ to me and I responded to that. But my early days of Christianity, I didn't have very good teaching. I didn't have, I didn't have people come around me to help me to, to see it as clearly as I ought to have seen it. And I remember in those early days, um, glorying in the wrong kinds of things. I think I was a believer. I think I truly had come from spiritual death to spiritual life. But I found myself often glorying in things that I ought not glory in. I remember the day that, that I, um, I went to my employer and I had worked since I was 16 years old in this particular supermarket and, and had worked my way up a bit in there to have some responsibilities. But I remember the day I went to him saying, I, I, just, I just can't work Sundays. I just, I just don't feel like I can work on Sunday. And so I, I remember that day, and, and I, remember, I remember going to my, my Legion baseball coach. I played Legion baseball for a number of years. I remember going to him and said, you know, I'll play, I'll play this year if, if I don't have to play on Sunday. And another friend of mine went with me. And, you know, in, in retrospect, I, I'm not sure I would have done that again because I think my heart wasn't in the right place. I think I was glorying in what I was and wasn't doing and not glorying in Christ. Now there's a place sometimes to as principle that you may take a stand for the sake of of being able to worship and all those things and, and certainly but my my heart was not in the right place. I was glorying in some stuff that I ought not to glory and I think I burned some bridges. I think I deeply hurt my father in the fact that I didn't play baseball that year. I, if I could redo it, I think I would do it different because I think I gave him a distorted idea. I gave him a distorted idea. Of Christianity uh, in many ways because of that but it's just the default of our hearts even even as believers we can we can rest in the wrong things we begin to glory in the wrong things and these religious leaders these Pharisees and Sadducees in many ways wanted to please God but the default of our hearts if we're not careful will take us places it ought not to take us and it was a sick kind of experience that was going on here that Jesus came colliding into now that lays a little background i want to take you now to another thing this this is really what i think is more important about what we want to see in this sabbath um, 
account. I want you to turn with me to to John chapter 5 and verse 8. Going back to the passage that I said to you, told us that uh, this is why the Jews are persecuting Jesus. And what I want to do here is I want to look at a statement that Jesus made, which is interesting to me. And I think in the context of how he viewed the Sabbath and what the Sabbath pointed to is incredibly enlightening. Look at it in verse 16 here. It says, uh, well, it's actually at the end of, uh, of verse 17. It says, but Jesus answered them. After, after it says that this is why they came after him, because of the Sabbath, Jesus says this, my father is working until now, and I am working. It's, it's, in, it's in response to the Pharisees and the Sadducees originally just coming to him. And they come to him and they're upset with him about the Sabbath, the way he's dealing with the Sabbath, what he's letting his disciples do on the Sabbath, what he's doing on the Sabbath, what he's telling people to do when they get healed on the Sabbath, all that stuff. They're all upset. They're all stirred up. And he says something like, My father is working until now and I am working. What in the world does he mean? See, that's where we need to ask, what, what does he mean? Let me, let me share with you, as I, as I looked at what others write about this, what I came across, and it, it really excited my soul. This comes from a sermon that John Pap- Piper has on the Lord's Day. In fact, he's supporting the fact that, that the Lord's Day, which is not the Sabbath, not the Jewish Sabbath, not Sunday, or excuse me, not Saturday of the Jewish Sabbath, but actually is now Sunday. We're here today on the Lord's Day. Scripture picks up the terminology Lord's Day. And what he actually is, is arguing for in this message is that it, it, it is okay to have a special day as Christians. And that we ought to treat it differently. That's, that's what this whole sermon is arguing. But in the context of that argument which I'm not going to go to today. We can talk about that another time. In the context of that argument, he talks about this passage of Scripture and what he thinks Jesus meant. And this was soul-strengthening this week to me. And it goes back to the idea that really the Sabbath, the Sabbath was a picture of something coming. Sabbath was a picture of something God was going to do. He gave us the Sabbath to point to something future that was coming. Now, let me read to you what he says about this statement where it says, But Jesus answered, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is what he says he thinks it means. And I think he may be right. What does this mean, he says? I think it means this. When Adam fell into sin, God got up from his Sabbath rest after creation and started to work again. My father is working. Not this time on creation, but on redemption. Toward a new creation, a new humanity. My Father is working until now, and I am working. You do not understand what I am doing. I and my Father are creating a new world, a new humanity, and when we are finished, we will celebrate with a new Sabbath. And that work of redemption and new creation was finished decisively on the cross. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead to celebrate the victory he had won and the new creation he had decisively obtained and inaugurated. 
Now he could take his seat with his father on the throne of the universe and enter his Sabbath rest. But that's not all. He goes on to write, So the final eternal blood-brought Sabbath rest has begun. We enter into it when we cease from our works and trust Christ and his finished work for us on the cross. This is the great and final meaning of the Sabbath. Christ has become our rest, our Sabbath. This is what Hebrews 4, 9 and 10 is saying. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. Past tense. We have entered. But then the writer adds in verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest In other words, we have entered it, and we must yet enter it. Redemption is accomplished. It must now be applied and consummated. Our eternal Sabbath is begun, but not fully present. This is probably why the early church did not abandon the celebration of one day in seven as a day belonging especially to the Lord. In Revelation 1.10, it is called the Lord's Day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. They knew that the final rest was still future. A day was still needed to bear witness to a self-reliant, self-sufficient world that our work does not save us or define us. Christ does. That's his admonition about the Lord's day. You need to think about things like that and you need to have questions about that, which I hope you do, because someday somebody from a seventh-day tradition is going to come to you and say, The Sabbath is Saturday. And that's right. The Sabbath that we were commanded to keep in the Old Testament is Saturday. So why do we meet on Sunday? And the reason for that is the resurrection. The reason that the early church picked up the Sabbath principle was because that was the day that the Lord had risen. He had risen on that day. A new Dawning, a new day had come. A new rest had come on the scene. And the scripture says that's the rest that we need to know. This morning, as I shared with you, that that our worship ought to flow out of our satisfaction in God. What I what I could have said is our worship needs to flow out of are resting in God. That we've entered that Sabbath rest. And that Sabbath rest is entered when we enter into Christ. We enter into His rest and we rest in Him. All of our confidence rests on what He has accomplished. He's finished the work. And so the question for us this morning is, have you entered that Sabbath rest? Sabbath was pointing ahead to a new creation, a new rest that was coming, a rest that could only be accomplished by the finished and completed work of Christ. When I see things like that, it just comes alive in my soul. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews with me. I read this to my class this morning. We're going we're gonna to close with this this morning. Turn if you have them. Otherwise, listen closely in, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9. This is what it says. 
so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. How do you know if you've entered into that Sabbath rest? The way you enter into that Sabbath rest is that you rest in what Christ has done. You rest in the finished and completed work of Christ. He did it. He's rested and he beckons all of us. Come you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you what? I will give you rest. Christianity is about rest. Ceasing from our ability to merit our favor with God and trusting the merit that Christ has accomplished. All of the Sabbath stuff that got distorted was about the merit of the people who followed it. It wasn't about the merit of another. It was a distortion of the Sabbath. The true Sabbath rest rests in what Christ has done. And so this morning, I pray that's where you rest. And it all is about what we're going to sing about right now, the gospel. Let's stand together.
Teach us to rest. Teach us about Sabbath, Lord. I pray this morning if there's some here who don't know what it is to have entered into that Sabbath rest, that even this morning, Lord, you will have opened their eyes to see that it's about taking refuge in Christ. Turning away from their own works, their own ability to merit your favor and looking to the favor of Christ and resting there. Oh, Lord, teach us more of that. Rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed this morning.